this first podcast of Lent 2012, Vanessa Alston starts this year's moot at St Mary Ordinary Lenten season with a reflection on the title An Invitation to Silence, Solitude and Human Becoming. These are just a few thoughts that I'm adding to the pot, okay, and in a sense it picks up, not surprisingly, on some of the things that you've just said. I think part of my instant response as to, you know, why might I you know, what is my relationship, what might keep me from solitude and silence, is I think probably fear. And I think part of that fear is there's something about silence and solitude that does sort of strip us bare. In some ways, it's a little bit like being naked. It's a sort of place where there isn't anything to hide behind. And so maybe if, you know, we use things that we do, there's a sense that we drop all those things and there's nowhere left to hide. And in some ways, I think behind silence, it can remind us of death. Because in death, there's a sense that it's just us and reality, or if we believe in God, that that's, that's what we're left with at the point of death. And, um, and I think it can confront us with the, perhaps the inner emptiness of our lives. And there's a bit of a fear, as like, well, what's going to be there if there's nothing? <laughs> and that is actually quite scary. Um, Sarah Maitland is a writer who has really made a choice to pursue, she's written a book about silence out of her own experiences with it and very early on a friend wrote her a letter and just said you know silence is oppression, silence is just there to be broken, how can you be going into silence and she talks about how she interacts with this letter over sort of ten years and comes back to it to sort of form her own understanding of what silence offers But I think silence, there is something actually quite terrifying about solitude and silence. And the other thing is that it's that idea of doing nothing, that I'm no longer going to control or manage what happens. It's a space where I'm not doing. I'm doing nothing. And we spend most of our lives managing and controlling and ordering and doing. And in a sense, solitude and silence is where we take all that off and we're no longer in control, in a sense, by not doing. Um, we, you know, we ha- we've got to put the list of things that need to be done down. And uh, a quote, um, somebody who I've read a bit of is a guy called Dallas Willard, who is a philosopher. He is also a Christian writer. But he said that one of the greatest spiritual attainments is the capacity to do nothing. But I don't think it's easy to do nothing. <laughs> Um, Pascal, who was an earlier Christian philosopher, said, I've discovered that all the unhappiness of men, we'd also include women obviously in that, arises from one single fact, that they are unable to stay quietly in their own room. And uh, a saying of the desert fathers and mothers who originally back in the third, fourth century really pursued this discipline of solitude and silence was, go into your cell No, it was go, sit in your cell, and your cell will teach you everything. And there's this sense, I guess, with this sort of wisdom, 
that whatever it is that we seek isn't going to be found out there. It's not going to, somehow it's found by stripping away and not doing rather than the opposite. So in that sense, it's great because it's available to us all. <laughs> if we can only engage with it. Dallas Willard also says something that I think is really helpful, which is that we need to lay down our ideas about what solitude and silence are supposed to accomplish for us. You know, we can go into all these things with, what am I going to get out of this, right? What am I going to achieve? But somehow we've even got to let go of that, our utilitarian approach to life. It's very radical in a way. It's very countercultural. He says that the cure for too much to do is solitude and silence. So the more busy you are, the more you need to do this. Because it's there that you find you are safely more than what you do. He also says that the cure for loneliness is solitude and silence. For there you discover in many ways that you are never alone. I'll just quote something else that he says. This is all from his book, The Divine Conspiracy. The finding of our soul and God is happening by an increased sense of who you are and a lessening of the feeling that you have to do this, that and the other thing that befalls you in life. That harassing, hovering feeling of have to largely comes from the vacuum in your soul where you ought to be at home with yourself and God. So we've got this invitation into this completely empty space. And so I started to think, well, okay, so what is this space an invitation to? I think it's an invitation to begin a certain kind of conversation. But perhaps it's a conversation with a part of ourselves we, don't, we won't normally access. If we don't engage with this, there's a part of ourselves that we won't access. And you can call that your soul or your deeper self. And I'm going to talk a bit about that next week. So next week I'm going to particularly talk about our relationship with ourselves. I also think it's an invitation and it's a space to begin to participate in reality, in a bigger sense of reality than we might normally have in our day-to-day -day lives. That whereas normally we might, we might be the subject, other things are the objects, you know, we're standing outside, this is a different kind of being and actually at its heart, it's an inv invitation to belong and to, be and to become part of something bigger than you. To participate. So that you no longer are separate and you're no longer isolated. So I think solitude and silence, this is the little kind of, um, I don't know, <laughs> advertisement, but I think it's actually essential for our personal and spiritual growth and to actually becoming a human being and that without it we won't develop um, as rich and as healthy and profound a relationship with ourselves with God, and with God, but also we need that to have a healthy relationship with others and our environment and the planet that we live in. So I kind of think this is not a luxury it's actually a necessity. And the other thing is that it's about helping us to develop um, 
eyes and ears to hear and see what we won't otherwise hear and see. And there are things that we won't hear and we won't see if we don't engage in this. And I guess I'm talking here about a more spiritual understanding of seeing and hearing, that we need to engage in this to all, in order to develop those ears and those eyes. I think it's an invitation actually to freedom. Um, again, I'm going to quote Dallas. Sorry, this is one of my books for this week. Um, he says, solitude frees us, actually. This above all explains, he says it's one of the primary disciplines, because the normal course of day-to-day -day human interactions locks us into patterns of feeling, thought and action that are geared to a world that he says is sort of set against God. Nothing but solitude can allow the development of a freedom from the ingrained behaviours that hinder our integration into God's order. So something happens when we take ourselves out of that day-to-day -day life that allows us to be shaped by something else, something that's different to our day-to-day -day world. And uh, I think in some ways we are very conformed. Although we live in a supposedly individualistic society, I think there's, there's a way in which we're all actually become very much conformed to what's around us. And uh, this is a little uh, anecdote, a scientific anecdote, again from Dallas's The Spirit of the Disciplines. It takes 20 times more the amount of amphetamine to kill an individual mice than it takes to kill them in groups. Experiments also found that a mouse given no amphetamine at all will be dead within 10 minutes of being placed in the midst of a group on the drug. In groups, they all go off like popcorns or firecrackers. Western men and women especially talk a great deal about being individuals but our conformity to social pattern is hardly less remarkable than that of the mice, and just as deadly. In solitude, we find the psychic distance, the perspective from which we begin to see differently. So in a sense, one of the reasons we might say we need to engage in this is so that we don't just go with the flow of everyone else, but we actually can um, perhaps not go the same way. So it's an invitation to freedom. I also think it's possibly an invitation to inner security and strength. I think actually the desert is actually, however we define desert, a desert is like a metaphor. Unfortunately, none of us are gonna probably literally be able to go to all the wonderful places we talked about at the beginning. So I think part of the challenge for us in this time of Lent is to think about how can I practice this without having a physical place to go that I might ideally want. Uh, and we'll come to that in a minute. Um, but I think that it is a place of strength because we develop a sort of a hidden life. We develop a deeper source of identity and confidence in who we are. And it's not a sense of who we are that comes out of seeking it from other people. So in solitude and silence, we're no longer looking to get all our self-worth from the affirmation of others. And that actually can give us a sense of a strength we can develop that kind of quiet confidence and security that allows us to be more truly ourselves. I think I also want to say that's all the kind of, this is, what's, this is why it's good for you. I also think there is, a, there is a warning as well that goes with this. I don't think it's entirely without um, dangers. Um, 
And this is, another, this is a quote from somebody else, um, Louis, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, Bouya, from A History of Christian Spirituality. He wrote, he says, solitude is a terrible trial for it serves to crack open and burst apart the shell of our superficial securities. It opens out to us the unknown abyss that we all carry within us and discloses that these abysses are haunted. And I think that silence can expose what's not reconciled within us. So our anxieties, our fears, anger, pain, anything that we haven't reconciled, unforgiveness, is likely to come out when we seriously engage with this. And, and thus, I think we do have to be very gentle with ourselves. And it is good, in a way, to do it within a framework where we are supported by others. And um, Ian is away at the moment in America, but what we want to say is, is that you know, Moot has pastoral care as part of what we do. So if things do come up for you through engaging in this, please, that you're troubled by, please come and talk to myself or Ian, and there are other people in Moot, um, so that you don't just have to take that away and struggle on your own. Um, that's very important. And again, I'm going to come to more of that in, in following sessions. I just want to talk about two methods that I think you can be in silence. Because, you know, okay, so what, what does that actually mean? <laughs> when we've turned everything off, when we've got our little space, you know, what do we actually do? Um, I think there's something called, and again, I'm now going to quote from this book, Cynthia um, Bourgeau, who's written a brilliant book called Centering Prayer and Inner Awakening, which I highly recommend. Um, she talks about two kinds of silence in her introduction. And the first one, she talks about free silence or outer silence. And this is the kind of silence that probably most of us have engaged in, where it's time we take out, where we might go for a walk, we might listen to some music. Um, but it's the sort of silence that brings you more in touch with yourself, where you listen carefully to how you're feeling and what you're thinking. Um, she says, in this kind of work, the free association of your mind provides the key to renewal and silence furnishes the backdrop where this work can go on. This kind of silence is where you have a sort of gentle conversation with yourself, you get in touch with yourself. And it can involve using your imagination. So Ignatian practices whereby you deliberately um, use your imagination is something that you can use in this kind of what I call free silence, a sort of free association. You can always let yourself go on an imaginative journey within yourself. And I think that can be very valuable as a way of being in silence. But there is another form of silence, which perhaps is a little bit at another level and a bit more demanding, and that is what is, can be called intentional silence or interior silence, and it's where you deliberately seek to stop your inner dialogue, your inner talking. And I'd like to talk a little bit about, there are different ways you can do this. There are different methods of meditation and concentration and awareness. Um, the one that we often use um, in the meditation group is where you, you have an anchor word or an anchor image, and you literally constantly um, repeat that to bring your mind to a kind of still place. And there are other um, practices which are more to do with awareness, where you literally you sort of s you observe yourself. So you almost sit outside yourself and you just watch your thoughts and the things, but you deliberately take a sort of stance where you just watch the thoughts go by and you're observing yourself. That's a kind of an awareness practice. 
and all of those are good. But I guess what I'm, um, I guess I'm particularly going to talk a little bit about the practice here because it's something that in the last year I've started practicing, um, kind of still really a beginner. <laughs> but it takes a slightly different stance uh, in that um, it, it, I guess it is more overtly a form of prayer, centering prayer, in that there is a sense of opening yourself up to the divine presence. And how you do that is you still, um, is that you still have a, you choose a kind of short phrase, and it can be anything that is particularly helpful to you. It has to be really short. Um, so for some people it might be Abba, or it might be trust, or it might be love, or, but you, you find something. And what you do is, is you come into a space where you're intentionally trying to open yourself up. And as your thoughts and the busyness of your mind comes into play, you use that word to release the thought. So you accept the fact that thoughts and busyness and stuff's going to come. But as they come, you've made a commitment that you're not going to hold on to them and you're not going to become attached to them. You're not going to travel with them. You're going to literally sort of let go of them and let them filter off. So in a sense, it's a constant act of letting go because the thoughts are going to keep coming. But you con it's a discipline where you're exercising a sort of muscle of letting go, of surrendering, of opening. Um, and you sort of engage in this practice for about 20 minutes. So you can have literally a thousand thoughts <laughs> in 20 minutes. But what you're doing is you are intentionally letting go of them. And, and what she says is that in the nanoseconds of stillness that happen between the thoughts, something is actually happening in your deeper self. And it's a bit of a mystery. But something happens in the self. Because we've all got a kind of surface self and you can call it an ego self, or you can call it a small self. And it's the self in us that identifies with our thoughts and feelings. So it's the self that operates on the surface of life, where we go with our thoughts and our feelings. We are our thoughts and our feelings. But the reason to engage in a practice like Centering Prayer is, is based on the belief that there is a deeper self that isn't just those thoughts and feelings. And that in order to access that and to, and to really still ourselves and start to enter into what some people call the heart or the soul or the deeper self, we've got to learn to not just identify ourselves with our immediate thoughts and feelings. We've got to learn to actually let go and let something else emerge. And it is literally, it's like doing an exercise regime on one level because we have to actually develop it as a practice. Um, it's not, you know, it, it's not something that you know, you, can, you can't suddenly run 100 miles. <laughs> I don't know, don't know if I can run 100 miles. You know, a marathon, you don't normally... You've got to train. And it's a bit like that. It's a discipline where we enter into sort of training. Um, but the idea is that it, would, it, it is very helpful to help us just get beyond those things that might grip us or hold us to another place. And actually, I have got a little extract that I will give you from the book. I'm sorry, it's really small print. I could not get the photocopier to behave before I came here. So you will have to get your glasses or a magnifying glass to read it. I have to apologise. But I will give that out. And if you are interested in this practice, I have to say this book is highly, I highly recommend it. That's Cynthia Bourgeau's Centering Prayer and Inner Awakening. But I guess, I guess I want to sort of say that this all has to be done as an act of love. 
I think that's what's really important. What's really important about this is that we step outside of judgment frameworks and um, beating ourselves up and telling ourselves that oh, we're hopeless and why can't we do this? <laughs> that we have to treat this in a very, we're entering into a loving space. Um, that this way of being and listening and stilling is really about loving ourselves, but also being loved. So I just want to encourage you that um, to, to remind yourself this is about love. I'm entering into a space. This space has to be defined and enfolded with love. And it's not about judging ourselves and rating ourselves on kind of like how good are we at this or not. And I'm going to finish by reading a poem um, because I also think that's what's sort of fundamental about this journey is that for each of us, we have to start where we are. And, um, and for each of us, that's a different place. And this is not a vicarious journey. We can't do this through somebody else. I think a lot of, thing, lot of things in our culture, we try and live through other people. This is about us. And it's going to be unique and individual. And each of us has a concrete and particular place to start engaging. But sometimes the hardest thing to do is to actually start from where we are and not to try and be somebody else. No heroics, no trying to be what you're not, <laughs> but starting from where you are. So I'd just like to, um, to read a poem. It's a poem by David White, and I'm going to give you the link um, to it on the website because I haven't got permission to print it and give it to you. But I think I'm allowed to read a poem. <laughs> and, um, and you can go to the website to get a copy of it if you'd like to. So this is the poem. It's called Start Close In. Start close in. Don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first thing. Close in. The step you don't want to take. Start with the ground you know the pale ground beneath your feet, your own way of starting the conversation. Start with your own question. Give up on other people's questions. Don't let them smother something simple. To find another's voice, follow your own voice. Wait until that voice becomes a private ear listening to another. Start right now. Take a small step you can call your own. Don't follow someone else's heroics. Be humble and focused. Start close in. Don't mistake that other for your own. Start close in. Don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first thing, close in, the step you don't want to take. Thanks for listening to the Moot Community Podcast. If you'd like more information on who we are and what we do, please visit www.moot.uk.net. Mm -hmm.